Roxanne Kalesha and I are colleagues. She and I work right next to each other doing counseling, and she and I are going to do a tag team preaching today, so I'm it right now. Um, this, is, uh, this is the second of a three-part message that God has been giving to me. Uh, some of you may not know if I've been doing it or not, and if you got it, so I'll just do a quick review. Uh, I've had almost constant headaches for about three and a half years now, and, um, you know, have been to every specialist and tried everything in the world that you can imagine, and they're, they're, they're going in the right direction. I'm discovering a lot of things physically, uh, uh, metabolically, chemically, exercise-wise, spiritually, psychologically, sin, grace, you know, a lot of things God is teaching me through this. Um, if you've ever read um, uh, John Eldridge, his book Desire, in that he says, I never trust a man who hasn't been broken by God. And, uh, you know, I'm approaching 60 years old in July, and, and these last three and a half years have been what I would call this breaking experience for me. And although it has not been easy or fun, uh, I know that God is using it, and I wouldn't want to avoid it because of the grace that he's offering through it. So I believe because I've been asking for healing, I've sort of struggled with illness all my life in one sort or another, and I've been praying for healing. And I believe that he's given me three simple ways for me to be healed. But as Dennis often says, you know, my story is your story, and your story is my story. Um, the three things that he's told me specifically on three different occasions, uh, maybe four, is to forgive myself, to grieve my losses, and to love the one I'm with. And uh, I've shortened that even more. There's a cute uh, movie that I wouldn't necessarily suggest, but uh, it's called Eat, Pray, Love. And so just in the interest of shortening the title, I would say um, forgive, grieve, love. And so forgiving everyone that you need to forgive, including and especially God and yourself. It might sound funny to say forgive God, but we have erroneous ideas about who God is. And as a result of that, we have to release those negative feelings that we have about those erroneous ideas. So it's not improper theology or blasphemy to forgive God. We know that he's not capable of committing sin against us, either omission or commission. But it is important that we release those negative feelings because those negative feelings get in the way of our relationship with him. And anything that gets in the way of our relationship with him is a stumbling block to our growth with him. And I have found that forgiving myself is the absolute hardest one of all. And I believe that the reason for that is, and this is just by way of review, but the reason for that is is that we learn to be against ourselves when we're probably two, three, and four, five years old at the most. Most psychologists would say that we're pretty much developed in terms of our conception of ourselves by five years old. Well, think of the things that we hear before we're five years old. Don't do this. You should do that. 
shouldn't do that. Shame on you. You're a bad boy. You're a bad girl, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I heard a lot of that stuff from not only my parents, but also from the Catholic Church, the nuns and the priests. And I was really serious, and I'm still really serious. Every girl except my wife told me I was too serious. That's why I married her. Um, but uh, so being serious means that I internalize those things uh, a lot and intensely, and they've not gone away easily, and I still struggle with them on a daily basis. As a matter of fact, I felt inspired to give you kind of an exercise to see how much this happens within you. Get one of those spiral stenograph notebooks that has, you know, it's about yay long and yay wide, and it has a line down the middle, and copy down your negative thoughts that you're aware of during the day on the left side of it. Just without, you know, um, you know uh, uh, editing them. You know, in an unedited, uncensored way, just put down any negative thought you have about yourself during the day or any negative thought, period. And then, maybe later on, maybe at the end of the day, go and try to find a rebuttal for that, whether it's a more reasonable thought because the other one was irrational, or it's a more scriptural thought because we know the truth will set us free, and usually those negative thoughts stem in a lie that was told to us or that we perceived uh, as an untruth in the beginning, but we held on to it. So just do that as a test, and then what you might find is if you keep doing that, you're going to start to do that in your head you're going to start to hear a negative thought in your head, and you're going to say, no, wait a minute. I know, I feel I can't do this here, but I know that the scripture says I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? And you, you feel condemned about your sins, and you say, no, I'm redeemed, and I'm forgiven of all my sins, right? So that's a way that you can do that, and that's a way that you can tell how much you're doing it, and it's also a way out of that. So that's kind of a... Uh, a summary of what we did the last time if you weren't here. Today I'd like to talk about grief, and uh, Roxanne here is what I would call a grief expert. Um, When I have uh, people call me that are really dealing with intense grief, I almost always refer them to Roxanne, and you'll find out why later. Uh, But first of all, just as a, a little humorous beginning, I'd like to explain this. Uh, This is a loss, by the way, and it's not so much this that I've lost. It's my golf game for the summer that I've lost. Not that I really have a golf game, but it's fun, and so I can't do that. Uh, But I'd like to, um, you know, let you know how this occurred. It was funny. My wife had the Bible open the other day, and it was in Proverbs, and it was about don't go down the road where the immoral woman lives because she'll lead you into treachery and you'll lose all of your stuff and everything will turn out bad for you. Well, I, I read that and then I thought of this. And so I, maybe you can show, wait a minute, before you show it, this, this, is, this is probably the only time that you will ever see me uh, sleeping with another female. So you can show that. That's uh, Paul's 55-pound uh, female pit bull that he found at Hubbard Park who, who has a broken left leg. And uh, he took her in, and 
she's become a part of the family, and, and uh, she and I had an accidental collision when uh, I was letting her out of the room, and she went this way, I went that way, and my finger went the way that she went because she was stronger than me, and so I had surgery on it last Friday. There's a pin in it. They re- restored the lateral ligament, so the pin's got to stay in for a month, so that's how it happened. Her name is Penny. <laughs> um, but that's a little loss, right? And you grieve that. Um, but the bigger losses that we grieve, uh, why don't we show that addiction cycle, Wes? This is something that we showed the last time. All right, any of the losses, if you look over here, the expectations, fear of rejection, lack of sleep, school, anger, relationships, fear of failure, loss of your hand function, loss of a friend, loss of a girlfriend, loss of a boyfriend, uh, loss of a husband or a wife, loss of a child, loss of a parent, any kind of loss is a stress. It's a major stress. To lose a spouse is one of the, uh, the top two stressors. And, you know, I've had a lot of clients say to me, if you've lost a spouse through divorce, that it's even worse because it's not like it was just, okay, the person got sick and died, but the person rejected you. And that rejection adds another stress to you. So in this cycle, ungrieved loss is a stress. Now, ungrieved loss is, I think, one of the biggest categories in this threefold thing. And the reason I believe it's one of the biggest is is because it's denied the most. Think of our culture. We have three visible symbols of uh, death. We have hearses, funeral homes, and cemeteries. That's it. Everything else is of life. Look at the beer commercials. All 22-year-old hard bodies having a great time, and they don't look like they're under the influence of alcohol that they're drinking, right? Every, everything is about life, youth, beauty, strength, power, money, prestige, being in control. It's not about loss, failure, sickness, weakness, deformities. It, it's not about it. We don't see that advertised. We don't see that promoted. It, it doesn't sell, right? So we easily deny it. How many days do we usually get for uh, uh, grief of a close loved one? Three. Three days. Three days. I've heard that in Israel you get 30 days. It's an order of magnitude difference. You know, they know how to grieve. They know that it's important to grieve. I remember growing up uh, in a half Italian family Uh, My grandmother grieved forever. She lost uh, two of her children and uh, never stopped grieving and kept saying at the end of her life, why doesn't God take me, you know? Uh, She thought that she had lost her life. Now that's, that's different. I feel that my grandmother entered into a morbid spirit of grief, and I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about healthy grief that leads you to a place of gratefulness, actually. As a matter of fact, I had an experience where I was eating lunch, and I usually eat lunch if I'm at home uh, standing by the kitchen counter and looking out. We have a pond in the backyard. It's mostly marsh, um, uh, but it's, it's green, and you know, there's no trees there. Or there are no houses there, rather. 
So I was eating lunch, and I started to, because I've been meditating on grief, I started to be overcome with grief, and I started to cry. And it, it didn't take too long before I let myself cry, and I did what I call collective grief, where every grief that came to mind uh, came to me, and I just let it all happen because those moments are so rare. And then I found very quickly I moved without trying into a spirit of gratitude. You know the expression, it's better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all? Well, I became grateful for all the people that I've lost and all the people that I had the privilege of loving and all the people that I had the privilege of being close to and knowing, all the things that I had done that I can't necessarily do anymore because of, you know, different things like this and the headaches and not being as young as I used to be, even though I feel that way. So grief can actually lead you, and I think should lead you, to gratitude of what you've experienced and what you've lost. Um, the third slide you can put up, this is probably uh, the hardest one that I ever had to go through. This is my brother. Um, I, I think he was probably maybe 24, 25 in that picture. Um, very sad story. Um, my brother was three months away from graduating the University of Cincinnati, and he was three months away from getting married. Uh, his uh, bride-to-be uh, had already graduated nursing school and was working across the river in Kentucky on the night shifts. And uh, I think we read some letters about how hard it was for her to drive because she'd worked the night shift and drive all the way home, and she was so tired and she wasn't used to that. A really sweet uh, girl that we all love named Marilyn. And uh, one day I remember my mother screaming and running up the stairs and it turned out that she had fallen asleep on the way home about five minutes before her house and her heart, uh, her car hit a tree and she died that night. And my brother lost his will to live at that point. And he went from a vibrant, loving, interactive person to a shell. And uh, my brother was probably the one that I was the closest to. He was seven years older than me. My parents were very busy. My father was much older. My mother was much older. And they were both very busy. My father working overtime and then going to night school because he had grown up in the Depression and didn't finish his high school degree. And he wanted to change from running a drill press to being a draftsman, which he successfully did, but wasn't often there. And my mother was usually cleaning something and wasn't as available as I would have liked. But Jimmy was there for me. We had a paper route uh, that we did for, I don't know, seven years maybe. I started when I was in kindergarten or first grade. I think we made $3.25 a week for delivering 200 papers. But I didn't care about the money. I just cared about being with him. We'd take this old wagon and take these papers and take a couple hours. And during the summer, we'd play Monopoly before we'd do it. And I just loved him with all my heart and soul. I lost him three times. I lost him when he fell in love with Marilyn when he was 16. And I didn't understand that because I was nine. And I thought he didn't love me anymore. Um, I lost him when he went to Vietnam. Um, I lost him when he lost Marilyn. 
and, and he went to Vietnam basically because he felt there was really no purpose to his life, so he might as well serve his country, and he enlisted. And he actually went back for a second tour of du duty. Um, he, he became the highest rank that you can become in the military as an enlisted man. He was a staff sergeant, a platoon leader. He was uh, a ranger in the 101st Airborne. And I'm really proud of what he did, you know. Uh, and then when he came back, he married someone that I really didn't care for that much. And they moved to North Carolina um, to uh, live because that's where his job went. And, uh, but that's where we wound up vacationing. And so he brought us to that vacation place, with, which is so special, Emerald Isle in North Carolina, where we've been dozens of times. Uh, so that's my biggest loss that I've had. Um, but in, and in grieving him, I remember when I was in the seminary, it took me three years to grieve his loss. I would wake up in the middle of the night, and I would go on. It was like 2 or 3 in the morning, and I'd go down, and I'd put the headphones on so as not to disturb anyone else, and uh, put on emotional music, and I'd just cry and cry and cry and let it happen. And I believe because I did that, there was a lot of feeling. What's that? Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, the, the most important part is his Hodgkin's disease that he suffered with for seven years and afterwards died. Um, I was at his deathbed the, the, the week before he was uh, going to die, and he was completely incoherent. And the last day that I talked to him, he, he stood up in his bed or he sat up and he said, this is, today is Christmas, and I says, or this is Christmas Eve, and I says, yes. And he says, you're going home tomorrow, Christmas, and I said, yes. And he said, you're going to be with mom tomorrow, and I said, yes. And he died on the day after Christmas. I really believe that he knew that he didn't want to spoil Christmas, and he didn't want my mom to be alone, and uh, he waited until then to die. And... Um, so this is the biggest loss that I've went through and the biggest grief, and I know how important it is to grieve as a result of that. Uh, for uh, an even greater experience of grief, I'd like to uh, turn it over to Roxanne. I'm going to help her to get her uh, microphone on here. First, I want to give her the, the tag here. Okay. People are shaking their heads. So um, my part is that I just want to tell you the title of my sermon. It's really a story. This is like I'm the storytelling part. I'm sorry. I didn't give her a proper introduction. Oh, my goodness. Um, Roxanne, and this implies some of the losses that she's gone through. Roxanne was a chiropractor, as is her husband, for many years uh, until an injury when an accident, a car accident, and that uh, took away her uh, chiropractic uh, practice. Um, and she's also an ordained reverend uh, and had ministries and actually doing grief groups with that, right? Uh, and then after that, uh, went back to school to the same um, 
college that I did, St. Joe's, and got a master's in counseling and, and met me, and we did some Christian grief groups together mm-hmm. and uh, Christian codependency. So that's uh, some of her background. I'm sorry I didn't uh, do it properly. I'm so glad he did it properly. <laughs> um, and Dave's the whole reason I'm here today, because um, he, I found out he was a Christian counselor, and I went to his office to see if he could use my help. I have to laugh now, but to see if he could use my help as an ordained pastor that did grief ministry way before I finished my degree and got licensed. And he was very kind and told me he couldn't. And um, <laughs> just before I was leaving, he said, oh, I see you did group work. And I said, yes. Oh, and so I did part of my practicum and part of my internship from St. Joe's doing groups with Dave in his office. And then when that was finished, he said to me, well, Roxanne, what do you think if, uh, you know, you set up a practice and I could send you people because I'm pretty busy. So I wouldn't even have a practice or even be here if it wasn't for for him doing that. So thank you. I wanted to, uh, the Lord changed up all my plans this morning. What else is new? But um, I'm going to start, I love to write. And I, I, I am quite a bit of a writer. So um, I'm going to write what I wrote the morning after Dave asked me to do this. And I wrote this all began just yesterday as my ma, as my how would I begin to describe him? Mentor, colleague, friend, counselor, priestly confidant asked me to co-preach with him in nine weeks for the second part in a series of talks he's giving as a guest preacher as his church on grieving your losses. As I began to pray about the task, the honor the intense responsibility of the call to speak into other people's lives, I began by asking the Lord to help me continue my seemingly endless grief journey, which you'll understand as I speak. I wanted to be honest about my experience when I would share on June 24th. Curiously enough, it began this morning, and this morning is the next morning I woke up. I was sort of, you know, in and out of sleep. And um, the Lord showed me something. And I realized, as we appropriate more of Jesus for ourselves into the very web of our life, we need to grieve our losses. How can he be our all in all when we are so grieved and upset? over losses of substitutes for him, substitutes for our relationship with him because they've become the very tangible desires of of our heart where our treasure is. And I had to find out that morning that no person can be a substitute. We can love them, we can enjoy them fully, but they cannot be a substitute for Jesus. Then they become a fix and love warps into need. Pure love goes out the window, and we wonder what's wrong in all our relationships. And I wrote this. The name of it is um, The Loss of Kitty Creedon. And Kitty Creedon was my first.
first serious boyfriend's mother. And so I woke up that morning, and I'm having this great visit with Kitty. I'm right back in the kitchen with her at her house. And my mother chose, when I was about six years old, to go from being a mother and not even letting anybody babysit for me to working 12 and a half hours a day, six days a week, and leaving me with my father's sisters. So my life changed greatly, and I just felt so abandoned and unloved and uh, uncared for and unprotected. But when I met Bob, um, his mother, Kitty, became everything to me. She gave me a sweet 16 party. She, she did everything. And um, she invited me to dinner. I was chairman of the prom. She had a prom party at her house way before they were heard of. She just really cared about me. And um, then I started to wake up. And I have been very sick myself in the past year with pancreatitis and trouble with my back that's been chronic since I'm 12 years old, and found I was laying next to my husband in our apartment. And it was our umpteenth wedding anniversary. I'm not telling. And um, I thought of all the proms, all the graduations from high school, college, master's degree, doctor's degree, an ordination, and a wedding, Could you put up the wedding, Wes? So I promised somebody very special here she'd see pictures of me when I was young. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Hardly recognize me, right? Um, (laughs) One miscarriage, six childbirths, bearing two children, along with everyone that greeted me when I was born, Losing our home to foreclosure, losing my career as a physician in a car accident with a UPS truck, and countless other what I call atrocities. If only my list was endless. It's just an endless list of all my if-onlys. And that's why the title of my time here is Here I Am, because I'm only here because of Jesus. I want to tell you a little story about how the wedding started. I can give you these. It'll be less confusing. Thanks. I wrote a story. I'm just going to share a little bit out of it. How, How this happened. By the way, he looks a little different, too. He's sitting back there. Honey, could you just raise your hand? (laughs) Oh, my goodness. So I just remember there was a square dance at college, and my parents brought me to college on Tuesday morning. And my only reason I was at college, I will, (laughs) my only reason I was at college was because I had promised my parents, because I wanted to be a nun, that I would not go to the convent if I could get through a year of college, and I didn't want to. But I would go if I wanted to at the end of the year. So they dropped me off on Tuesday. 
And I say, um, and then on Friday, there was a square dance. Oh, by the way, I do want to do a little default here. Uh, when I talk about emotional things, I sometimes forget what I'm talking about. <laughs> so just forgive me. Um, so we were at college, and I had a terrible roommate. Her name was Seton, and we named our do- one of our daughters after we met in Seton Hall, my husband and I. So I wrote, as the dorm floor was emptying quickly, the realization hit me that if I wanted to keep my secret, I better not go to the square dance. And my secret was that I wanted to be a nun. I didn't want anybody to know that. Okay, I finally said, let's go, feeling manipulated, backed in a corner, and befuddled about my survival this freshman year. For sure, I didn't want to be asked to dance. After all, nuns don't dance. <laughs> By the way, Dave and I to each other, he's Father Miners and I'm Sister Roxanne. So I engaged in conversation with the other co-eds who wanted to pose and be asked to dance. I had listened to them hoping that they, this might be the night they would find their husband. There was a wide gulf between us. They all wanted to snag a husband, and I already had one. His name was Jesus. Without warning, my eyes fixed on the cutest guy I had ever seen. This is Sister Roxanne. Um, (laughs) The sailor boy had curly blonde hair, the likes of which I had never seen before, and bright blue eyes set perfectly into his blemish-free face. Something happened inside me, and I wanted to ask, I wanted him to come over and ask me to dance. So I wrote, ooh la la. So he wasn't moving. So since I was planning on being a nun, I didn't quite know what to do, but I was getting really desperate. So I unabashedly smiled at him. He looked down, and I stared some, and then he would look away. (laughs) I wondered if I was being coquettish. Whatever I was being, it worked. Finally, he was moving towards me, and my heart was pounding. I could keep my secret. You know, he was the cutest guy there. Suddenly, some other guy tapped me on the shoulder. Startled, I took my eyes off of my target to look over my shoulder at some guy who had no curly blonde hair and didn't definitely have bright blue eyes, looking like he was about to ask me to dance. Confused, I looked back at the sailor boy, and he had retreated. It was too late. I looked at the shoulder chapter and noticed he was glancing and simultaneously noticed my arm in a sling. And he said, can you dance? And I let him have it good. I told him, I wouldn't be here if I couldn't, would I? And that was the night that I realized on Tuesday my life would never be the same again. And I wrote, we're still dancing. Now, these dances are quite different dances. (laughs) Not like that night all the time, by any means. So he wrote the same story about our meeting. And he says that his best friend, Paul, insisted he accompany him to this college dance. And he just wanted to stay home and do his homework, but he went off grumbling all the way. 
And across the gym, he noticed this girl that was actively engaged in lively, animated conversation with the other girls. She was no wallflower. And he got really excited, but they had to go back home and change from their three-piece suits to flannel shirts and come to a square dance. He came back, and he finally found me. And then he says to Paul, took a deep breath, and he said, See that girl over there? I'm going to marry her. And uh, I went over. I knew I met my match when she said to me, I wouldn't be here if I couldn't, would I? I may have been late early in the evening, but I won my prize, my wife of umpteen years. And we've been sparring ever since. Um, we decided to be chiropractors. Tony was going to go to NYU to medical school to be a geriatrician, which is a really new profession in the day. And I have to take a drink of water. And he was in pre-med. Of course, he couldn't just be in pre-med. He had to be in pre-med in the mechanical engineering school. So we spent our courtship doing homework and writing papers. <laughs> and... Um, he wanted to go to chiropractic school, so we did. And I decided, since I was never going to be able to walk after the age of 24 and be in a wheelchair my whole life, because I had such bad rheumatoid arthritis, that we would um, have me go to school, too. And then I could run the office, and we could be together. How romantic. And, you know, I could be running everything. It sounds good, doesn't it, Dave? I could be running it. We women aren't too controlling or anything, but it would be great. So we got in the car, and we left for Palmer College, a chiropractic in Iowa, 1,100 miles away from all our families, which seemed a big loss at the time, but actually the best thing that ever happened to us. We got there and found out I was pregnant. Wes, can you put on the next picture? With our son, Duane. Um, he was born there all alone in the middle of Iowa. We didn't have anybody there with us. And he was very bright. And the nurse said, oh, my goodness, he picked up his head. He's so wonderful. Oh, you have such a smart son. You know, you guys, this is such a blessing. And two days later, they took up the tiles and put new tiles down in the nursery. And they pushed the babies to the side. And Duane got brain damaged that day. So that was, that's a huge grief. We also were in Davenport, Iowa, and they were using the city water system to try out fluoride. And they had, I think, one million times more than you would put in the system, put in. So he was born with no enamel on his teeth, which we didn't know. So when his teeth came in, he just cried incessantly, and we were beside ourselves. So he had steel caps put on his teeth when he was a year and a half, and he was just made fun of, and he had severe dyslexia, and um, he was very precious to me. We were very close. Um, I'm a gardener. Not that I'm gardening these days, because I think I'm a little younger than you. Yeah. <laughs> But um, 
I, I can't garden anymore. And uh, we gardened together. And we had a very special relationship because of this problem that he had. In the meantime, we had a daughter, Amory, and then we had a daughter we named Seton, and then we had a daughter, Andrea, and we had four kids in less than five years of our marriage. And can you tell what church we went to? Catholic Church. <laughs> and I loved God, and I was going to obey God. And so was Tony. So this, this picture of Duane was taken one week before he died. And uh, I look pretty cool there, don't I? Yeah. So does he. And uh, he was having problems we weren't aware of and got into uh, dealing cocaine, evidently. Uh, Tony and I found some thing that we thought was Tang under the pillow in his bed. He had some little packets. And it, I tasted it, and I went zing. I didn't know what happened to me. And Tony ran down the street and brought it to a doctor, and it was cocaine. And so he was in trouble with people. We don't know why, but Seton and I were in the kitchen the first Monday of Easter vacation, um, and all day everybody had been calling, where's Duane, where's Duane? And every friend he had called us, and we couldn't find him. And uh, so Amory and Andrea came home from high school, and they said, well, we're going to go look, because unbeknownst to me, they were smoking pot in the woods behind our house. I was so naive. I knew not, none of this was going on. So they went to look, and they found his body. And uh, that was quite a night. And then our son Mark was 10 at the time. We had buried my father the year before. And he, he went and got his little prayer card when the funeral director showed up, and the police were there, and medical examiner, and our house was turned into what? We were all so devastated. And um, I told you I'd have a bleep. And uh, so Mark ran in his bedroom and got the card from my father's funeral. He and my father were like this, and my father had died a really hard death from squamous cell carcinoma of the mouth. And um, he came out, and he planned the whole funeral. And Mark's been ministry his whole life, <laughs> went to Bible school. He's a theologian. And uh, anyway, he planned the whole funeral. And... We wouldn't allow a wake because we couldn't grieve. We, we just couldn't grieve. We didn't know how to grieve. It was impossible to grieve. So we didn't know how to do that. So we, um, I think I gave you the most important page. No, I just want to give these to you. Thanks. And we just didn't know what to do. So that was when we turned to the Lord. In 2 Corinthians 1, 3 to 8, it tells us, I'm not going to take time to read it, but basically, and this is my statement for what I do, that we suffer, Christ suffered, he comforts us, and we're all called to comfort others. 
And John Walker tells us in, in Invisible Fellowship, he writes Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I love Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He's one of my heroes. And he wrote, in our meditation, which you all know about from Dave, we ponder the chosen text on the strength of the promise that it has something utterly personal to say to us for this day and for our Christian life, that it is not only God's word for the church, but it's God's word for us individually. Bonhoeffer says, when we expose ourselves to the specific word of God, it is to address us personally. It's not just for the church. And so that's my, my prayer for us, that we would realize as I continue and, and also wrap up, that this is a personal time for us to hear from the Lord, for us to be able to grieve our losses, each one of us. And um, Dr. Cowper and John and uh, Tim can get ready. Dr. Cowper is a famous physician from the Civil War, and he makes a very profound statement. His profound statement has five words in it. Grief itself is a medicine. And any of you know anything about the Civil War, the Civil War was the most grievous experience for in our country. It was just so grievous. You know, brother fighting brothers, and it was horrendous. And so I brought, I always bring a handout. I used to speak a lot. I haven't spoken in years. And uh, I, brought, I would always bring a handout because it would be like the most important thing, the handout. And you could take it home with you, and you could look at it, you know, 20 years later, and you could remember how the Lord touched your heart and what you got for yourself, experienced yourself, and you could bring it home. Okay, remember the little glass hearts that I had and people put pieces of plastic for the people they were grieving from? So we'd have, and I still have mine. So we do something tangible. But today I felt we need to, we need to grieve here today together, that we're a fellowship, that we're a community. I belong to another church, but you are my cousins here, my first cousins. I always come, almost always when Dave speaks, and I know many of you. So we need to be here for each other, too. So Tim and John are going to pass out my handout, and I brought several boxes of tissues. Now, I only brought eight boxes of tissues on purpose because um, each one of you are going to have to maybe ask for a tissue from somebody else. Heaven forbid we should be crying here today. So that's what my handout is, and that's my prayer, that you would be able to do that. Next on my agenda is um, talking about my daughter. But wait a minute. <laughs> when we... Good. When we buried Duane, um, we were all in family therapy and having all kinds of problems. So 
it was just hard with his difficulties and my three daughters and Mark are all very highly gifted kids. So it was just a lot of difficulties. And I remember I was left alone, so I didn't know how to handle having five kids, especially five teenagers. And we were in therapy, and uh, when Dwayne died, we called our counselor, who's a minister, and he came and stayed with us that night, and they stood right by us through it all. And um, we had a weekend. We'd get together, like, for weekend therapy, rent a place, and we'd all go, and we'd spend the whole weekend there. And we did, and I thought was feeling like I was pregnant. Well, this great therapist said, I want to talk to you alone. Roxanne, you're having a false pregnancy. You need to, you know, come in and see me more. So being a physician... I did blood tests every day, so I called the lab, and I said, can I come down and have a blood test and see if I'm pregnant or not? I know I'm having trouble, but I don't think I'm having this much trouble. So I got the blood test, and at 2 o'clock that day, Larry, the phlebotomist, called, and he said, "Um, you're pregnant. (laughs) You're going to have a baby. And the first words out of my mouth were, there is a God. There is a God. We're having a baby? I was 41 years old. We're having a baby. Oh, my goodness. How could this be? And so it turned our family's whole outlook around because we're having a baby. So Tony and I have been trying to figure out a name for this baby. And he's Lithuanian, and Amber is the gem from Lithuania, so we had picked out a name. We were going to name our baby Amber. But somehow, I was in labor from December 28th, and she was born on January 6th. And our doctor just stayed overnight with us so that he could see this baby be born and be there. And I kept just saying, I don't want a boy. I don't want a boy. Nobody can take the place of my son. It was the worst nine months of my whole life. I was struggling with guilt. How could I be having a new baby when, of course, it must have been my fault that Duane died. You know, I just didn't do something right. And so... um, she was born, and he announced, made the big announcement. I said to the doctor, is it a boy or a girl? I'm desperate. I'm desperate. Is it a boy or a girl? Is it a boy or a girl? And the doctor said, I'm not telling you. I'm not telling you. Your husband has to tell you. And he was weeping so. Speaking of gratitude, we were so filled with gratitude that the Lord trusted us with another child when we'd messed up this one so badly, because that's how you feel. And he said, it's an Amanda Joy. So she didn't get her name. She got a different name. And her name is Love and Joy. Can you put it up now, Wes? And there we are. We're in the Adirondack Mountains. 
where we love to go all the time. And um, I wanted to bring another picture to go after this one. But um, she felt so left out because she never knew her big brother, Duane. And we grieved in the family as best we could, try to keep things going and still grieving. It was really hard. Life is really difficult. And she uh, always felt left out. But she was the apple of Tony's eye. They both had the same minds, and they were buddies. And um, she and I were buddies. And I decided to teach her at home. She was a very talented artist, musician. She was accomplished violinist, flautist, and pianist. And she was an accomplished artist. We have... We could put on an art show with all the oil paintings she did. And she was a quilt artist, won her first ribbon for completing a beautiful, beautiful quilt when she was 11. And she and I just worked together all the time. I wasn't home teaching her ABCs and one, two, threes. We were out ministering from the time she was three. We were, we were ministering in dance. I would preach and she would dance or we both would dance and I would preach and it was great and we named our ministry Joy Comes in the Morning M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G so it just was ministering to morning people all the time because guess what I was in such deep grief all the time so things are going really well we homeschooled in Bill Gothard's ATIA program, and which is not school. It's where you just study biographies and geography and traveling and make meaning out of everything you do. And she and I were gardeners. So we gardened, and we just had this special bond. And she started to get really nasty. And I called the pediatrician. I said, I know teenagers get nasty, but this is really weird. She's really nasty, then she's really nice. And we got the bad news. Actually, my husband, who blessed me, got the bad news on a Thursday morning when the call came in. Since he's a doctor and she had an MRI of her brain, they called and said she has a brain tumor. And I was in the shower and he chose not to tell me because I had every Thursday morning I had four hours off. He would stay with her and I would go do whatever I wanted to do, which was go to Weight Watchers. <laughs> Struggled with my weight. So uh, I, I was gone and I forgot all about that she had the MRI. I wasn't even thinking of it. And I came home at about 1 o'clock and... Um, she was in the other room, and I walked into the dining room, kitchen, and Tony said to me, sit down. He never tells me to sit down. What do you mean, sit down? And he said, I just need you to sit down. And he looked so somber. And I said, no. Not my baby, not my baby, not my baby, no, no. And that was the beginning of a year 
Oh my goodness, what a year. Brain surgery. Vomiting, vomiting, vomiting. Anybody knows about brain tumors in kids? Then it spread to her whole spine, and we put in a very grievous year. And then she was all excited because Dream Come True was giving her a, a cruise to um, see Frank Peretti and Twyla Paris, her two favorite people. <laughs> and um, she died in the hospital with us during the cruise. So Dave left something very important out when he introduced me. He didn't tell you that I have two PhDs. My first PhD is Duane. My second PhD is Amanda. And my husband is the one. It's interesting you spoke about gratefulness. My husband is the one who lost his daddy's little girl that would go through the house screaming, Thank you, God, that we had her for 15 years. I thank you, Lord. I thank you. I thank you. I thank you. I thank you. Thank you, Lord. And that was how we, we learned all these little techniques. But they were grieving. He wasn't thanking God because he was happy. He was thanking God because he was going to be hysterical and cry. And he's not afraid to cry. He's a real man. I want to read you the scripture that helps me the most. Uh, Let me find that. Whoops. I'm reading from the New Living Test translation, Habakkuk 3. And uh, he's praying. In verse 17. He says, oh, and by the way, any of you John Piper fans, I don't know, I'm a theologian junkie. I'm always reading stuff like that, see if it'll help me with my work. Um, He and Noel made this verse their wedding verse for their life. So they weren't like Tony and me in that other picture, thinking everything's going to be hunky-dory and our lives are going to be all happy and everything's going to be fine. They face reality, and uh, this is our reality. Though the fig trees have no blossoms and there are no grapes on the vine, even though the olive crop fails and the fields lie empty and barren, even though the flocks die in the fields and the cattle barns are empty, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. And John Piper came to write his when I don't desire God, fighting for joy, I will be joyful in the God of my salvation. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He will make me as sure-footed as a deer and bring me safely over the mountains. And Hannah Hernard wrote her book, Hind Feet in High Places, an allegory about that. So the part that I found that's important to me is we read how Dietrich Bonhoeffer said we need to make it personal for us. And this, my prayer for this is this would be an experience for each of you. And this is how I make Habakkuk personal. And I had to 
type it out on my computer. And there'll be more stuff in here. Even though I got seriously messed up at five years of age due to the first of several sexual abuse incidents in my life, even though my father taught me to lie to my mother and took me to the zoo, that I went to the zoo or whatever as a little girl so he could take me and go drink at a bar and ignore me. Even though I was a latchkey kid starting at six, coming home to an empty house so my mother could make a lot of money six days a week. And I'm going to add, and was able to accumulate $800,000, every penny of which she lost during her retirement, caught into making a bad investment. Even though you didn't, God didn't send me any brothers or sisters, and I was so lonely, my parents wouldn't even let me have a cat or a dog when I was alone in the apartment. Even though I had to cook every night and feed my dad dinner when he got home late from work, always with a buzz on. Even though we lived on top of the local grocery store and not a nice house or a neighborhood like other kids I knew. Even though I had to wash everyone's clothes on the washboard and hang them out on a line from our apartment window instead of playing with friends. Even though our firstborn son was brain damaged when he was two days old. Even though Duane was murdered or committed suicide and we never officially found out. Even though you had Amanda Joy on her way to our family before Duane died and then took her away, she suffered and died with brain and spine cancer 15 years later. Even though I was in an accident with a UPS truck one year after Amanda's death and lost my career and could never be a chiropractor again. And I was a founding doctor of the International College of Applied Kinesiology, and it was a big loss for me. Even though our finances have been irrevocably wrecked by each of these major work interruptions as a result of all these deaths, diseases, and accidents, even though Tony and I lost our homestead of 28 years due to foreclosure, and even though I had my body wrecked by raging calcium because of a tumor I had to have removed in one of my tiny parathyroid glands last year, and even though all the calcium got deposited in my pancreas, causing me ongoing eating challenges, and even though our 11-year-old son, grandson, has suffered with osteosarcoma, a terminal cancer, for over four years, I made a decision like Habakkuk. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will rejoice in the Lord of my salvation. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes me as sure-footed as a deer, able to walk upon the heights. And how do I do that? I do that by allowing myself to grieve. And I wanted to thank Dave, and I've told him this personally, because he asked me to do this, and I started really working on it in a new and a different way, about five, year, five weeks into getting ready, one time I was just sitting and took a blink of an eye, and the Lord took away my horrendous grief pain. It's just praise Jesus. So I can tell you, 
he totally just took it away. Um, one of the ways to grieve, he tells us in Psalm 62.8, is pour your heart out before me. He is our refuge. We need to tell him. We need to tell him we are angry at him. I remember raising my hand in anger at God in the kitchen saying, why did you take Amanda away, God? We need to grieve our losses and do what he says in Psalm 1, 2, to meditate day and night on his word. We can grieve our losses his way and find peace that goes beyond understanding. It's a journey of a lifetime, or we can choose not to. And uh, because I told you, here I am, you know, now I was like Samuel and Job, and it was, here I am for your use, and God really privileged me to do what I do every day of my life, to sit with his kids, all of his children, in whatever pain they're in. And I don't always do a perfect job. I'm sure I make mistakes. But the Lord's there, and he covers a multitude of everything. And the last one I wanted to point out is I love how Hannah tells us how she was dealing with her barrenness in, uh, in 1 Samuel 2. And she just, she just says, I surrender. I surrender. The music this morning was perfect for our message. We surrender. And who's going to be in charge? Are we going to grieve our losses? Or are we going to hang on? So I, um, Dave and I got a great idea together. And we're going to be playing a uh, seven or eight minute you Whoops. <laughs> YouTube video of Robin Mark, and I got my pancreatitis in February. It's all is well. And um, I'm going to do a little advertising. Robin Mark is going to be at the First Church in Wethersfield tonight doing a concert. He's from Northern Ireland, and I'm half Irish, and I'm going. Tony's going. We're so excited. We even got to get a little special request in for him to play all as well, Lord made away. And so Dave and I want to, it's been one of his favorites too. And I see Dora going, yes. So um, it's your choice how you want to, you know, take in this YouTube. You could close your eyes and be quiet. Remember, there's tissues around. You could um, watch it. You can do whatever you want to do, but please, my prayer is, allow it to touch you, and thank you for listening to my story. Uh, as we, <clears throat> excuse me.